<clears throat> this is uh, August 11th, 2019, Ramadan's birthday. <laughs> In case any of you want to <laughs> say something to him afterward. Uh, and I'm um, going to talk about uh, globalism uh, today. Uh, it's, it's become such a huge, huge divi- dividing line between those who uh, appreciate uh, differences in the world and those who fear differences in the world. This is an article from a tricycle of uh, twi- tricycle is a national Buddhist magazine. And this is an article from their uh, winter 2017 issue. It's called Globalism 3.0. The secret to world harmony isn't oneness, it's multiplicity. This is by Kurt Spellmeyer, who we're told here uh, is a uh, Zen priest and directs a sangha in New Jersey, and he teaches English at Rutgers University, and is author of a book called uh, Buddha at the Apocalypse, Awakening from a Culture of Destruction. As usual, I'll just be able to read uh, segments of this, about maybe two-thirds of it, uh, in the interest of time, keeping this from getting too long, but uh, I'll start right off here. Um, he, he, he starts in his introductory paragraph by talking about how uh, the Dharma, in its many forms, in its many streams and lineages, has spread all over the world. He mentions that the Vipassana, the Vipassana school of Buddhism, has uh, traveled to every continent except Antarctica. Uh, and he also talks a bit about the other streams of Buddhism. And then he says, but what will happen to the Dharma now with nativism on the rise everywhere? This again is a couple years ago. This came out. Not so long ago, it seems to me, the growing trend was an eagerness to become global citizens disappearing jobs and a loss of sovereignty help explain what happened after that. But the reversal has a deeper cause, globalism's challenge to group identity. The world was culturally unprepared for a cosmopolitan civilization. I think of uh, Barack Obama saying uh, uh, not so long ago, maybe a year year ago, that he felt that... uh, the country was not ready for the change that uh, that he thought it would be. It was too soon, he said. The world was culturally unprepared for a cosmopolitan civilization. It's my feeling, however, that Buddhism now has a role to play in keeping that future alive. After all, once the Dharma left the Buddha's native land behind, his community was free to embrace the entire planet as its home, provided that his followers could find a way of rising to the challenge. 
to liberate themselves from old animosities, they had to invent a new kind of open self, one capable of treating differences not as existential threats, but as opportunities to connect more deeply with the world. And then a little uh, history. Globalism's modern advocates tried to sell it as unprecedented, but actually we've been here before. For example, in the Mauryan dynasty, that was in the uh, 3rd century before Christ, India had become a cosmopolitan hub, its trade routes extending across the known world, its population swelling, its society increasingly rich, stratified, and specialized. The Mauryan capital, Pataliputra, was one of the world's largest cities in its day, and on its streets you would have heard a cacophony of tongues spoken by people whose behavior and attire would have seemed foreign indeed. Persians with pointed beards and high hats, Bactrian Bactrian traders in embroidered robes, Malaysians eating at street markets, even a few Greeks in tunics. Buddhists in Mauryan India and in the dynasties that followed struggled with a challenge very different from the one facing the Dharma's early followers. The challenge is no longer how to create their own community with common values and attitudes, but how to interact with the other alien groups now living next door. Um, The timing of this uh, choice of Teisho, this article, uh, is obviously related to uh, the shootings, mass shootings, uh, both of them in Dayton and El Paso in the last uh, eight or nine days. Uh, again, the fear of the other. But he continues, Let's say that on your street in the capital you notice a group of Zoroastrians gathering in the public square to conduct a fire ritual. At the same time, Chinese traders have arrived to pitch their food stalls in the same space. As an argument heats up, you decide you should retreat into the safety of your home. Once you close the shutters and lock the door, you can meditate in solitude until you feel that none of the outside din touches you. But retreating like that never sets anyone free. Quite the opposite. So then what are you supposed to do? One thinker with an answer was Nagarjuna, who lived in the second century before Christ. Clearly a careful observer of debates between philosophers of different schools, Nagarjuna could have taken sides with one faction or another. Instead, stepping back, he made a discovery. All of these debaters were helping to create their opponents' arguments. Each position actually depended on the others for its content, and each was completely empty in itself like the hollow core, he said, of a banana tree, or bamboo. Adversaries kept thinking that the stronger claims would finally bring their dispute to an end, 
but a resolution could only come from stepping outside of the debate. Nagarjuna called this the relinquishing of views. So this reference to uh, each position actually depended on the others for its content, uh, we could say the same with respect to liberals and conservatives. Uh, there's no the, the word liberal and the word conservative makes no sense except in in contradistinction to the other. Uh, he gets more into this uh, as we go on about uh, how there is no thing that has any any meaning apart from its context or its its relate its relations. He continues. When we turn to disagreements on the street, applying his insight doesn't lead where we might expect. Nagarjuna doesn't tell us to seek a common ground, a oneness that reconciles opposites. Oneness means we're all the same. Yet in a world of constant change, that condition of agreement can't last for long. It couldn't last in Nagarjuna's time, and it won't in the 21st century. Whether we are talking about systems of belief, nation-states, or ethnic groups, appealing to oneness lets us turn our eyes away from the endless variations that arise from impermanence. But if Nagarjuna is correct, then we don't need agreement to live in harmony. Once we stop identifying with any view, we find that harmony is always there. I know I gave a Tesho on this just uh, a month or two ago, um, but it so goes so much to the very core of all of the violence and, and disruption in our world that uh, maybe a second won't isn't going to hurt anyone. Of course, uh, in this article, he chooses to advance the argument for appreciating differences. Uh, fair enough. Um, but oneness from seen um, wholly, uh, oneness in, it can't be apart from uh, manyness. It's this a, a oneness that uh, doesn't also imply manyness is, is not really anything that makes any sense. So, so we often may talk about oneness, but it doesn't mean obliterating distinctions. So when he cautions us about uh, not getting attached to oneness, yes, we don't want to be attached to it, but there's also, you could just take the other side and, and say that there's, that's a valid thing to aspire to, is a feeling of, of oneness with others. But let's him let's continue with this side of the of the coin, the, the differentiation side of the coin. <clears throat> the key thing is not to be not to identify with a view. Have views, have a have a have an opinion or a view when you go into a voting booth or when you need to, but when it, it clashes with others and it, it, it invites um, conflict, uh, then we need to 
you know, hit the hit the brakes and uh, and not feel obliged to assert our opinions and our views. That's where the problem becomes too much when when it's when it's uh, not helpful. And then he begins uh, begins talking about more about uh, emptiness. Emptiness, uh, most of you know, uh, is sort of the very essence of the of the Dharma, the very essential teaching of Buddhism of every kind, Zen and Tibetan and Nishiran and Pure Land and Vipassana and Theravada and Mahayana. It's all in in, in essence the teaching comes down to no thingness. Shunyata. But this 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 doctrine of no thingness can be understood differently in at least two or three different ways. It can be articulated. It's a it's such a it's such an elusive it's such a um, it's such an elusive concept that is so so inaccessible to most people. It's so easily misunderstood that usually at introductory workshops, for example, I don't even bring it up, uh, or hardly bring it up, because it's so because it's so easily misunderstood. It can sound so bleak and uh, nihilistic, uh, but but when I gave a talk at uh, the Chautauqua Institution a couple days ago, I felt obliged to like jump right in there, right from the beginning of my talk, because. I was invited to talk about the um, the question of of uh, God and evil. How how can a loving God, uh, an all powerful, all knowing, all loving God, allow so much suffering to His creations, creatures uh, that He begat? Uh, and uh, how is it that uh, that uh, bad things happen to good people? Good things happen to bad people. So I had to address the the, the, the two main terms of the of the of the topic, God and evil, uh, through the Buddhist understanding of emptiness. And I began by saying. First, let's get this out on the table. In Zen, there is no God concept. We don't make use of the concept of God. The Buddha wasn't a God. In other Buddhist streams, other Buddhist uh, sects, uh, the, the God they may worship the Buddha as a God. Kind of, well, they worship him anyway. They may not say he's a God, but they're they're uh, added their relationship to the Buddha is more one of worshipping a kind of deified person, but not in Zen. So then I said, all right, with that said, because I was was addressing a group of several hundred uh, pretty religious, Christian religious people, uh, I didn't want to dwell on that, on on our difference. Uh, So I said, let's try to find some common ground here. And... uh, then I also mentioned as far as evil, it's, it's, it's the same as the term God in as much as we see neither one as having any real substance to it. 
they're they're both they're both uh, constructs of the mind. Now, evil, evil, uh, I, I explained. Evil has a place as far as a modifier, as an adjective, an evil act. What happened in El Paso and in, in Dayton was an evil act. Uh, but evil as a noun uh, it gives a substance to it. It makes a thingness out of it that uh, is contrary to Buddhist teaching and the experience of awakening. That Through awakening we see that there is no self-substance, there's no uh, inherent nature to anything. Uh, there's no permanent nature to it. And so, uh, from there we can we can go. And I went on to go. I went from there talking about uh, how it's hard to, to to talk from as a Buddhist. It's hard to talk uh, meaningfully about this God concept or as something real, or even the concept of evil as a noun. It gives too much too much uh, realness to evil. But let's get back to our author here. Long before Nagarjuna, of course, emptiness enjoyed a special place in Buddhist thinking. In the Kula Sunata Sutta, for example, it's a famous sutra, the Buddha describes emptiness as the most liberating of all states of consciousness. One he praises as pure superior and unsurpassed. Here you notice he says states of consciousness. Um, This is what we can access through Zen meditation, Zazen. Uh, The the mind is fundamentally uh, empty, going beyond thought. But six centuries later, Nagarjuna radically transformed this idea by redefining emptiness as a property of everything, irrespective of the observer's state of mind. Nothing, he insisted, has svabaha, no, svabhava, or own being, own being, an autonomous existence. Instead, Things exist only by virtue of their dependent origination. So I've often referred to this, also known as the the doctrine of dependent co-arising, where there is no thing apart from every other thing. And then uh, he he quotes what Nagarjuna a verse, Without one there are not many, and without many there is not one. Therefore, dependently arisen entities like these have no characteristics of their own. Again, liberal democrat, uh, God, human, um, and so forth. Without a father there is no son, and without a son there is no father. These two do not exist without depending on each other. As these words stare up at us from the page, it's hard to miss a point often overlooked in classes on Eastern philosophy. Emptiness is all about relationships. 
surely it was no accident that Nagarjuna's influence grew just as the Dharma ex- expanded far beyond the Indian subcontinent to uh, West, North, China, Tibet, Southeast Asia. Emptiness, he says, helped make this happen. When we encounter people quite different from ourselves, especially when we find them close by, we may experience what feels like a loss, a loss of our sense of wholeness or unity. We become like exiles in our own land, and that sense of exile fuels much of the rage that is seen everywhere today. A lot of it uh, on the part of uh, older white men. Uh, I try, I've tried to to empathize with these white men who uh, I'm, we're told uh, dominate the, the base of our president, uh, his loyal base, and uh, try to appreciate their, their, because of their fears, their insecurity, uh, of how they, would, they feel as they see fewer and fewer white faces around them and how threatened they must feel by that. But according to Nagarjuna's philosophy, we've made a mistake when we think that way. Difference adds instead of subtracting. It makes our world larger than before, even though we often fail to notice this. Well, maybe everyone listening to this can appreciate that point, the difference adds instead of subtracting, but uh, this, this, this deep um, emotional reaction that comes from, uh, well, self-identity, uh, from fear of other uh, makes it not a matter of making sense. It it's, doesn't have to make sense. It's, it's an experience in their bodies, these people who react to seeing people who look different than them. Um, I think he just glosses over this a little. I just had to add that. Yes, difference adds instead of subtracting, of course, but try to convince that of people who feel that they're on the ropes in their own country and their country is being taken over and changing in a way that they could never have imagined. Scholars have written millions of words explicating Nagarjuna's teachings, but this enlargement of the world is happening all the time. No sooner do we meet another person on the train or at the counter in a coffee shop than we have already been changed. We might prefer to think that we're still the same, a permanent self that can stand apart from events as they unfold. But Nagarjuna's logic tells us that's impossible because the self is just the sum of its relationships, which are also empty in themselves. Even what we call self-awareness comes via the detour we take when we encounter others who show us to ourselves, who show us to ourselves from a new angle. I think this is why uh, there are so many more um, uh, reactionary uh, conservative people in the rural parts of the country where they don't see many people who look different than them than in the cities. 
The differences we find in our world then offer us the priceless opportunity to become something more than we are now. But that's exactly why strangers nearby can appear so threatening. They force us to confront our own openness. We can always try to close that openness down, but unhappiness will follow. Our only alternative is to embrace the endless process of becoming. So changing, it's a a profound point he's making here, that, that we change in relation to others. And, and, and if we're not open, somewhat open, to adapting to others, changing in the company of others, uh, then we suffer and we just close in on ourselves. The retreat into nativism across the globe shows how unready many of us are, were, how, how many of us were to take that step. And then he gets into a long story about, from ancient Tibet that I'm going to have to skip, uh, talking about uh, uh, Indians or uh, Tibetans finding others uh, different from them in India. Then I'll pick it up. Tibetan seekers and Indian sages, they all had to undergo a profound transformation before they could truly recognize each other. And that transformation required them to let go of any fixed identity. Marpa, he's one of the biggest names in Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, Marpa eventually, he's from medieval times, eventually journeyed home to found the Kagyu school, It's one of the four main lineages of Tibetan Buddhism. And this school played a central role in the birth of the Tibetan Buddhism we're familiar with today. But his own experience in India shows that there can really be no such thing any more than Zen, that is, there can be no such thing as no such thing as Tibetan Buddhism, quote unquote. Uh, Any more than Zen is strictly Japanese or Chan, the property of China. The Dharma breaks through every wall we erect because its ultimate goal is compassion, but compassion arises only when we embrace the foreigner as the self. And on the occasions when the Buddhist followers have forgotten this lesson, suffering always follows. One example is the Zen establishments the Japanese Zen establishment's support for Japan's invasion of China in World War II. It's a big, big blemish on our our lineage in Zen, uh, the way that uh, too many Zen teachers and others in the Japanese establishment uh, just obediently went with the emperor's imperialistic uh, moves to invade China and then uh, in other ways in in Japan. More recently, yeah, this is even worse, more recently, Buddhist-majority states, I think he's referring to Myanmar, formerly Burma, um, Buddhist-majority states, long tolerant of differences, have launched terrifying crusades 
to rid themselves of foreign, quote-unquote, foreign elements. This is just, just words fail at how, what a, what a, a disgrace this is for our tradition. I remember uh, Roshi Kaplow saying sometimes in public talks, he'd say, no, no war has ever been fought in the name of Buddhism. Um, I don't know, not having studied all history, I can't verify that, but it seemed like, you know, Buddhism was, it would be hard to find a war fought in the name of Buddhism. Um, today, we know this horrifying reaction in uh, Myanmar toward the, the ethnic Rohingya, driving them out and, you know, doing all these atrocities. And there, uh, just as I used to feel pride in the fact that there was no war fought in the name of Buddhism, now I have to uh, say that that's, that, is, that is not Buddhism. Uh, that is tribalism. That is deep, deep delusion. Uh, and but then, I used to used to dismiss Christianity. I used to tell people in college, when I think of Christianity, I think of three things: the the Inquisition, the uh, Hundred Years' War, and the Crusades. Well, there, let's say that there may have been plenty of people who identified as Christian in those days who didn't want to have anything to do with any of those things. Outside observers quite correctly use the term ethnic cleansing to describe the persecution of Myanmar's Rohingya. But the problem is much bigger than this tragedy since it now threatens to engulf much of Buddhist Asia. Thai authorities, that is authorities in Thailand, recently defrocked a monk for preaching, a viol- preaching violence against Muslim citizens while Sri Lankan Buddhists Bhikkhus, monks, have whipped up anti-Muslim violence there. These monks and their supporters see Islam as the Dharma's mortal enemy when the real danger is their own attachment and fear. Attachment to an imaginary we and fear of an imaginary them. And nativist politics, which depends on exactly these distinctions, has multiplied many times over the ignorance of the firebrands. Political uses of the Dharma go a long way back. The Buddha himself enjoyed the support of Bimbisara, the local ruler, as well as that of Bimbisara's patricidal son. Indeed, the Dharma attracted royal patronage throughout its time in India, as it did in the rest of Asia as it spread. It's also true that Chinese and Japanese rulers sometimes bent the Sangha to their will by promoting, say, one teacher at the expense of rivals, or by driving nuns back into secular life, or by licensing ordinations. Yet the Indian kings and the Chinese emperors have vanished from the earth while the Dharma remains a going concern because it knows no boundaries. India couldn't pick up and go 
but the Sangha could and did. If the Dharma is bigger than the modern nation-state, then how has it organized itself? The answer is that Buddhism always relies on transmission or lines of descent, starting with the person of the Buddha. In the Zen school, the lines of descent traverse borders and even continents, connecting men and women across ancient India and Pakistan, as well as China, Korea, and Japan. Bodhidharma, who brought Zen to China, may have been a Persian. Yeah, there seems to be no way of knowing. He's usually identified as from South India, but then there are those who think he was from Persia, modern-day Iran, more or less. Some critics have charged that transmission in Zen plays an oversized role, but interpersonal connections have been Buddhism's lifeblood, connections between teacher and student. Monasteries, too, often view themselves this way, as progeny of a common mother temple. Yeah, for sure, uh, transmission has a a, a mythical uh, aspect to uh, the idea that uh, Zen has been a mind-to-mind transmission from the Buddha himself. It's, uh, as I've said before, uh, it's the Chinese. Remember, always remember, China originated in Zen, Chan, as it was known, Chan originated in China, and the Chinese, with their their need to find the authority of their predecessors, uh, had to establish in this 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 new this new religion at the time Chan uh, coming into China. They needed to establish uh, the, the legitimacy of this new religion, and doing so, they created this mind-to-mind, this, this ancestral line uh, going back to the Buddha himself. Um, not that there isn't some, some continuous stream that can be um, presented, uh, but it's not as, as uh, cut and dry as, at least this is what the, what the scholars say, that uh, really, once you get back further than, than China, once you get back to India, then it's, it was not at all this pure line of mind-to-mind transmission, teacher-to-student. <clears throat> this, uh, this whole matter of the ancestral line that we, we chant in its abbreviated form, and, and we used to chant in its full version, it is so fraught with uh, myth, if not fiction, uh, that I've, it's taken me years to try to uh, arrive at what I feel we need is, is a, a, more, a true, more truer representation of uh, this ancestral line that includes women. Um, it's been very difficult, but I think I'm just weeks away from unveiling uh, what uh, I've been working on with Robert Goldman Sensei 
and the Mala Sensei uh, to to kickstart a new ancestral line. We might visualize these lines of descent as the spokes of a great wheel stemming from a common hub, the Buddha, and radiating out in all directions. But unlike spokes, which meet only once, the different transmissions have never stayed apart. The reality has always involved all kinds of lateral connections, borrowing and exchanges. Uh, this, this is true in our own Sangha. Uh, when uh, I worked with uh, a couple of other teachers uh, on uh, the koans that I didn't work on, the koan collections I didn't work on with Roshi Kapil because he didn't work on them with Yasutani Roshi. Uh, and so I'm very grateful for this uh, cross-fertilization that happened uh, just, I don't know, 20 years ago. For this reason, the best image of the Dharma's unfolding wouldn't be the wheel, after all, but a net, much like the image that recurs throughout the Avatamska Sutra, the Flower Ornament Sutra. And this uh, is is the, the, the net here, uh, it, it, it grew out of the sutra um, where the Buddha s- sends a certain guy uh, to meet with other enlightened women and men and um, t- he's told to go meditate. He spends 10 years meditating on the boundless sea and then he comes to this uh, epiphany of seeing a lotus. Um, but then in addition to just the lotus, the sutra, it says, adds an unexpected detail. Covering the lotus is a net of jewels, every jewel reflecting all the others. This, this is called uh, Indra's net. Uh, and he says, this passage symbolizes a major shift in the way Buddhists understood the Dharma. And, this, and that is that each one of us is only one of countless jewels in the net. The, the jewels are where each, each strand of the net intersects. There's a jewel. It's, it's a metaphor. It's, it's an image. And, uh, and there are infinite number of these intersections and these jewels. And each one of them reflects not just another one or five or ten, but all the others. He says, at 1,500 plus pages, the flower ornament sutra isn't likely to become a bestseller in the Twitter age. It, it offers, though, a model of community unlike any other. Nation states may be dominant in the world as we know it, but the flower ornament suggests we take a bigger view. Globalism 1.0, the ancient version, probably failed because the world still lacked the communications network it enjoys today. In our day, globalism 2.0 is falling apart for a different reason. We have the technology, but misunderstand what connects us as people. Not just our similarities, but even more, our differences. Followers of the Dharma might assume that Buddhists everywhere share some key idea that makes them all the same. Well, that would be emptiness. Uh, though, how many Buddhists, how many people who actually call themselves Buddhists, really 
uh, understand, much less or believe in emptiness is, is hard to say. Similarly, as Americans, we want to believe that some Americanness allows us to transcend our diversity. But the message of the flower ornament is the very opposite. We each use the Dharma to create our own one-of-a-kind Buddha world. We each reinvent the Dharma for ourselves. And in the same way, we as citizens have an America, in quotes, that exists only in our minds. Yet every Buddha world and every America mirrors all the others and are all are joined together by the aspiration to connect. That's why both Buddhist and American are still living ideas. The emptiness at the core of both identities allows them to be shared. Is that in in real life, the radical openness required to appreciate differences comes with a certain risk, because people may not respond in kind. You could reveal your deepest feelings to a friend, only to learn later that the same friend has made fun of you. Or, on an even larger scale, after a head of state has signed a non-aggression treaty, foreign troops may invade overnight. Now, as in ancient Indian times, openness is the biggest gamble of them all, a gamble that people sometimes lose, as history clearly shows. Yet we really have no choice except to trust, and trust may not be, as we often assume, something that events can undermine. What Zen calls the trusting mind has indeed nothing to do with the way others act. So we trust because to not trust puts us at odds with the way, the Dharma, the truth. And yes, in a, in a worldly sense, our trust can sometimes be betrayed, but we have really, if, we're, if we want to live out of our true self, our essential nature, then we, I mean, we need to trust not to be foolish, uh, in term, practical terms, worldly terms, financial terms, let's say, but to trust that ultimately for all the differences we encounter in other people, they are no other than ourselves, that they have the same true self that's no self. We'll stop now and recite the four vows. <clears throat> Penetrate the great way of Buddha. 
liberate endless divine passions. I bow to our brute dharma gaze beyond measure. I bow to benedict the great way of Buddha. I bow to attain all beings without number. I bow to liberate endless blind passions. I bow to uproot dharma gaze beyond measure. I bow to meditate the great way of Buddha. I bow to attain.